You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, uh, today's factoid comes to us from uh, a little show in England, or, well, UK, called QI, uh, short for Quite Interesting, uh, hosted by Stephen Fry and uh, featuring uh, Alan Davis um, uh, as a as the regular uh, panel contestant on this, it's kind of like a quiz show for comedians and stuff to go into. Anyway, it uh, talks about the reason that the giant tortoise didn't get a scientific name for hundreds of years. Oh, okay. And it's because it was too delicious. <laughs> what? It it needed to make its way all the way back to England in order to get a proper scientific, you know, like Latin name. But um it none of them made, made it back. <laughs> I I see on the ships on I the see. ship they could I the, see. the in the 16th century explorers the only comparisons that they you know use in describing these things were how they tasted like chicken beef mutton or butter and just to say how much more delicious they were than all these things <laughs> um, everyone thought that the uh, the eggs were the best anyone had ever had. And they seem to cure indigestion and cramps and, and all everything else. Plus, you could just stack them on the deck and not feed them or give them water for six months. And they would just stay there, still alive. And then you could just kill them and eat them whenever you wanted. Wow. Okay. And they even had this special bladder inside them. If you cut it open, you got clean pure water (laughs) they say that there'd be no way that that the large-scale commercial whaling of the 19th century could have even happened without these giant tortoises to keep ships at sea for weeks at a time um so uh unfortunately we'll probably never you know anyone listening will probably never know what a giant tortoise tastes like because they're endangered and and kept you know away on the galapagos islands um or it could just be that you know ecuador is keeping them all to themselves so (laughs) (laughs) wow oh that that's very interesting eric um so anyway uh i get a lot of factoids from that show qi it's great if uh if if you're familiar with it or if you're not look it up online somewhere and uh youtube has at least clips from the show and uh, it's pretty good so, uh, Glenn, how's the past couple weeks been? Uh, very good, sir. Thank you. Busy, but uh, good. Good, good. Well, um, we, we've got a, a topic ready for today that started with an email, and we'll, I guess we'll kind of do our, the best we can, but we may have bitten off more than we can chew for, um, uh, t- you know, we, we may just kind of scratch the surface, I guess is a better way to say it. Um, right. And... Uh, It'll be an opportunity for more questions to roll into us. And yes, we'll we'll definitely pass the buck to the listener right. uh, to help us out. <laughs> and uh, as as we delve into this topic, that we're you and I are not experts in. This is not necessarily our our personal passion or domain. Um, so what we're going to be looking at is some of the changes that are going to be taking uh, effect, specifically in the latent print discipline. Uh, as ASCLAD Lab gets absorbed by ANAB uh, or ANAB, I, I, I heard that they don't like to be called ANAB, that that they prefer like to actually spell it out. But I, I I'm not quite sure then what the point is. But um, uh, <laughs> I'll, we'll probably just say ANAB for the rest of this episode. Um, but with with um, like I said, ASCLAD Lab being absorbed by ANAB. The 17020 and 17025 standards from ISO are staying the same, but the supplemental uh, is going is now going to be the one coming from ANAB and not the one that uh, most agencies had been operating under uh, from ASCLAD Lab. Uh, so, 
that's a quick summary. We'll talk a little bit about more what all that means here. Right. Okay. So I had received an email uh, from an individual who had said, hey, have you guys ever considered doing an episode for those of us who aren't accredited? And, you know, what um, should we get accredited? What are some things, concerns, if you're not accredited and so forth? Could you guys speak on that a little bit? And I'm not even sure you and I need a full episode to do that because the short answer is, oh, yes, you should be accredited. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, I, I've said this before and I will say it again. I mean, accreditation is a pain in the butt. Took us. It, it really is. It, it, no, it, it is. It's, it's, yeah. it's a pain. It's frustrating. It's annoying. It is sometimes you feel just trapped by your own just one single word that has trapped you into this weird illogical spin where this doesn't make any sense where literally have shot ourselves in the foot and you're chained to some written standard that you had that someone missed a word and and now it's being interpreted a certain way it really is sometimes awful having said all that I would never go work for a laboratory that's not accredited. It wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to me to go work for an unaccredited agency unless my job was to make them accredited <laughs> within three to six months of joining that agency. I, I would never do it. I would never work for an agency that's not accredited. There, are, uh, you're just setting yourself up for just so many issues that you that an unaccredited agency are not taking care of some of the basics. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really protecting I, do, do you, yourself. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah, it would have to be some extraordinary circumstances to to make it to an uncredited lab um, for all the reasons that you just said. And um, you know, we you know, you meet people that that are in that situation, and you know, in some instances, you you kind of feel sorry for them because you know that what that often means is not having all the resources that they really do need uh, to, to do the job a hundred percent or that no, their resources. Not being serious about quality. Right. That, that there's, that even though they personally may be super concerned about quality and, and never do anything, you know, questionable, yep. the people around them, the people above them, um, you know, may not hold themselves to that same standard. And then, they're they're at risk of um, of being basically told to do something that that they don't agree with and not having that quality assurance uh, program to to really uh, fall back on when uh, times to be held tough. accountable to. Yeah, I mean that, that's what it comes down to. It's it's the accountability and a, a plan of action of what to do when there is an error. Because I have found that unaccredited agencies, <laughs> when they start to have debacles, suddenly start making up rules ad hoc on how to handle certain things. That that doesn't happen in my As experience much. the same way with <laughs> with an accredited agency. Yes, there's some interpretation, but at least there is a plan of action, and there is. A level of accountability that's expected, and that um, it, it, I agree. It, it, it you are at risk as an examiner your own career if you do not work for an accredited agency. I mean, I, I I hate putting it so bluntly, but that really is the fact of the matter. And I've heard from some examiners that go, "Well, you know, we have SOPs. Well, that's great. It's nice that you have written SOPs." Right. And then they'll say something along the lines of, "And these SOPs." would if we were to be accredited that these SOPs would meet all the requirements of accreditation and my experience is no actually they wouldn't they actually probably wouldn't um you might think that they do but they wouldn't and if they do then get accredited <laughs> if if you already have all the things in place right. then then go that extra mile but the reality is just having SOPs does not necessarily mean that you have all the other components in place for accreditation. So I and, and just in my experience, <laughs> well, they are not they are not ready. I mean, because obviously, even the the agencies that are accredited and obviously have SOPs, those SOPs um, aren't enough because every year accreditation comes and makes everyone add even more SOPs. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I think I've yet to have gone through an, an audit where we have at the end of it 
less to do in documenting or writing reports or, or whatever. There's always, every time we go through it, oh, now you have more to do in tracking something or uh, writing up something or documenting something. Um, and, you know, I understand the, the reason for that. And like you were saying earlier, some of them don't make any kind of sense, but it is what it is um, because of, of how things get worded. And uh, overall, yes, I'd much rather deal with the system uh, than, than be out in um, in international waters uh, with uh, with no rules. Yeah. So, and just from from you know from a defense perspective, working right. private cases, I tell you when I, when I when I get pulled in and start looking at these things, it's so easy to find they're not doing this, they're not doing that, they're not doing that, they're not following the standard, they don't have this documentation. It's uh, without that level of accountability, without that constant consideration of what. What do the SWIGFAST standards say? Let's make sure they're incorporated in our in our standards. What are the national standards, the international standards, these requirements in you know the ISO doc that we're following? Uh, without that accountability, I find lots of holes all the time. Right. Does that mean that the conclusions are inaccurate? No, it doesn't. But does that mean that you're putting out quality product? Uh, no, it, it, it certainly does not mean you're putting out quality product just because your conclusions may be accurate. I think it's, it's, um, it is a false sense of security to think that's all that matters these days, that as long as I'm making correct IDs and exclusions, that's all that matters. That's not, that's not true. In today's courtroom, it's not about just that. It's also the validity, the documentation, the support for the conclusions that you're offering, the process that you use to get there. And I, I know we've talked about that ad nauseum. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so let's, let's, Let's back up a little bit and uh, kind of touch on what we mean by some of these things. Um, sure. So, um, the first we're talking about the ISO standard. ISO is the well, it it's the International Standards Organization, and I know that's not quite what ISO stands for, but um, close it, enough. It's it's close enough. Um, right. I think it's technically and, French and it's something else, but you can and, think and, of it that way. And I like that you – and we should, again, a good little educational seminar for the listeners. It's a standard. And so – and that's the proper word that the 17025 or the 17020 is a standard. Within the standard, you have requirements. And so these should not be confused. 17025 is one standard and 17020 is another standard and each one has right. a set of requirements. Now – the one of the f first funny things you run into is that it's hard to look at these standards uh, because they're all copyrighted. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So yes, each standard. Yes, you. Must you just want to, oh, well, what is the seventeen oh two five standard? Let me just punch that into the Google and and well, it, it it's it it's harder to to get a hold of one of these than uh, than you might think, um, but. Those, that does come with accreditation. You know, the people that are responsible for, for putting that all together at your lab, you know, have, have copies of all of these. Uh, and usually that's all tightly controlled so that um, uh, because, you know, every copy of these things costs money. It's like now, a software license. Exactly. Um, so in the past, uh, for the past, uh, you know, number of years now, when you're accredited through AskCloud Lab, the American, the, sorry, the American Society of Crime Lab Directors Laboratory Accreditation Board, uh, they had, they would you know be the group that comes in and does this assessment, this audit to go through the accreditation process. Um, Although there were there are other companies too, there are uh, other FQ, companies. FQS, ANAB, etc. Right. Um, so they, they would say, okay, if you're going under 17025, specifically is what we'll be talking about today, uh, you have to do everything that this ISO group says uh, for this type of laboratory that 17025 deals with, but then you also have to follow these supplemental requirements uh, regarding forensic science testing 
and here's this supplemental uh, list of things. Right, and, and and that's a good point because 17025 can be any laboratory in the world that does any kind of testing. It could be for uh, testing tires. It could be for testing rubber. It could be for testing, uh, you know, uh, drugs or um, uh, urine tests or whatever. So it doesn't really matter except the supplementals are specific to forensic science providers. Right. So what's changing now is that um, AskCloud Lab has kind of merged in or given over responsibilities of all their accreditation stuff, uh, responsibilities, to ANAB. Um, so now this supplemental that went along with the 17025 standard uh, is now being switched out for the ANAB supplemental to go along with the 17025 standard. And... and I just let's back up a little bit to what is ANAB, A-N-A-B. So there were two different organizations in the past, uh, ANSI, A-N-S-I, and uh, what does that stand for? The uh, American National Standards Institute. And they had combined with the American Society for Quality, A-S-Q. So ANSI and A-S-Q combined, <laughs> and they formed ANAB, which is the American, or sorry, it's the American National Standards Institute and American Society for Quality uh, <laughs> National Accreditation Board, I yes. think. Is that what it all is? Oh, my God. So, yes. A so, the, so <laughs> the first A of ANAB stands for yes. ANSI-ASQ. <laughs> yes. That is like military <laughs> level of, of acronyms. I mean... You don't get acronyms that Acronyms within acronyms. I mean, that, that's, that's the kind of stuff the military does. So, you know, th th those are the professionals when it comes to acronyms. It's a Mobius <laughs> strip of acronyms. <laughs> yeah, all new things to, to memorize for when you go on the stand to tell this t <laughs> to the judge and the jury. Yes. Um, uh, and just, hey, you know, the, just just sound like you know what you're talking about. They don't know. You know, if you, if you get something a little bit wrong, it's okay. They... They, they won't notice. Um, <laughs> if you say bureau instead of board, it's going to be okay. Just just go with it. Sound confident, and that's that'll get you most of the way there. Yeah, but it, it does make it a little more confusing. That is a crazy acronym. So ANAB stands for, for that, the ANSI, ASQ, and National Accreditation Board. Yuck. Okay, all right. So, yes, continue. So, oh, geez, where was I? <laughs> Supplement the supplemental. They're replacing the ASCLAD Lab 2011 supplemental for forensic science providers. Right. So um, I guess what we're gonna, we're going to kind of touch on some of the the major points that you know might relate to specifically latent print stuff um, and changes that, uh, especially if you're if you've been uh, ASCLAD Lab. ISO or ASCLAD Lab International Standard for the past you know few years now, uh, what you might be seeing here coming down the line. Um, the first thing, the first prediction I'm going to make here is that there's going to be inevitably some period of I won't say chaos, but of <laughs> of shaking out a bit of shaking out. I'll just leave it at that. Where where you know, all these labs that are now jumping in with this, I mean, there's already labs that were under this, this, um, this, uh, accreditation requirement, but bringing in all of AskCloud lab means bringing in all of the auditors that were doing these, uh, assessments of all these other labs. And now with all these new people interpreting these supplemental requirements, um, there's going to be, you know, things that come up because it's not just one group of people, you know, it's, it's just people from other labs that are accredited going out and accrediting other labs that are accredited all underneath this one, um, this one standard. So you have different interpretations that get told to different labs and it's, it, it's going to take, like I said, some shaking out to figure out for the actual way up top people at ANAB uh, to maybe even in some cases settle disputes as to what certain things mean for certain disciplines. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I think that happened to an extent when a lot of labs went from the legacy Ascloud lab to the international standard. Um, and I, I see it, you know, uh, on the horizon of happening again. So uh, I think with that, the way around that, the way through it really yeah, is uh, to, to really, especially if you're just in the, in your average latent print lab somewhere in America um, or, or, or elsewhere, or elsewhere. I, I, I'm not sure how far AnAB goes, but, um, uh, you know, wherever you are, if you're having to do new things because, and, and your QA department says, because AnAB or AnAB or ANSI ask NAB, <laughs> um, and that's basically the reason that they give you for something new reach out and talk to other people, you know, figure out, well, what are you having to do? What are you having to do? And, um, so a lot of times, um, quality assurance departments that don't have a comparative discipline person involved inside them will just take whatever the assessors say and be like, all right, you have to do this now because this guy said so, uh, without kind of any question as to why or, or if other labs are having to do the same thing. Um, so if you have a, that, that network of people where you can reach out and say, okay, who's having to do what, and then bring that back and say, okay, this, yeah, everyone's doing this. We have to do it too. And th- but this, that guy just made it up. So we should, you know, re- you know, um, appeal or at least question higher up from that guy as to whether we really, really do need to do this. Um, and you know, it'll eventually kind of start working itself out um, uh, in the first couple of years. And and I I think your point here too is that this really shouldn't be drastically different. There shouldn't be a whole new slew of things that suddenly we have to do very differently. There's a few minor things, I think, and we'll discuss a few tonight, but this does not require a complete revamping. It's just rewording some standards that already exist or compiling them or... um, um, summarizing them into one uh, requirement as opposed to the the current 2011 supplemental where it might you know it consist of three four or five requirements so it's condensing and collapsing and reconfiguring a little bit all right we're ready to jump in well, sure. I think we have just a few that uh, stood out to us, and I, I think we should stress to the listeners too that, as we already said, you know, Eric and I are not quality managers. We don't work in a quality assurance unit, and uh, although we try to stay up with this as much as possible, even from our background in SWIG and OSAC, we're not experts in this domain. So, if you have had recent assessor training and you know more about this than we do, please correct us. We don't want misinformation <laughs> out there. Uh, email us, uh, contact us, send us questions, send us comments. Uh, we'll be happy to share them. We think that a lot of examiners might be interested in hearing more about some of these upcoming changes. So we just want to get this dialogue going, but please, we are not an authority on this topic by any any stretch of the imagination. One of the first things up, um, talking about uh, test and calibration methods and method validation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this do you, do you want to read, yeah, read it off? Yeah. Which, okay. So this is a uh, section 5.4, uh, specifically, uh, 5.4.1.2. I will be doing this number thing quite a bit. Uh, it's kind of how these documents are set up. And uh, this is in the AR 3028 supplemental, the ANAB new supplemental, the 3028 document. Yep. Uh, all test methods that involve the comparison of an unknown to a known shall require the evaluation of the unknown items to identify characteristics suitable for comparison and, if applicable, characteristics suitable for statistical rarity calculations prior to comparison to one or more known items. Uh, yeah. One of the notes that specifically lists friction ridge detail in the latent print so no like oh then maybe that doesn't apply no they, they specifically mentioned that this applies to to latent print testing all right so what, what does that mean i mean it, it's basically saying you need to do your analysis before you do your comparison and the way i would interpret that is that you need to 
Um, I mean, my interpretation is that you should be annotating the characteristics in the latent print before looking at the known print. Do you interpret it that way too? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to look up real quick to see, you know, because they have these different words like of what what does evaluation mean? What does um, uh, what you know? What does require is pretty pretty clear what that means, but. Um, oh. In the glossary? In the glossary. Uh, so I want to take a quick peek. Actually, I didn't see evaluation um, uh, defined as specifically as, as some of the other terms. That, you know, again, is going to come down to um, these, uh, these you know, assessors coming to your lab and uh, looking to see if you've done an evaluation of the, uh, of the unknown before to identify characteristics, it. yes. Right. Uh, to yes. The question becomes: Is does the evaluation require documentation? And given what we know about accreditation, it didn't happen if you didn't document it. I don't see how you can evaluate. You can demonstrate because it's a shall. Shall require the evaluation. If you don't document it, how did the evaluation occur? And if you, you know, I could one interpret this as well if you have a worksheet and you say, I looked at level one detail and I looked at level two detail and I looked at level three detail, would that meet that requirement? Probably. I mean, I, 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 I think it would. I don't think that's the exact spirit of this. I think the spirit is you're supposed to identify these specific characteristics and annotation would make the most sense but I, I suspect that if you narrated which characteristics you evaluated for your comparison you know generally that probably is going to pass but I, I don't know what, what do you think um again I think it I think it's going to eventually come out come down to you're going to have to um you know document you know these features and be able to demonstrate to the assessor that you did so prior to uh, the comparison mm -hmm. of the unknown to the known. But in the short term, there's going to be some disagreement as to between different assessors or um, you know as to what that means and how how much is documented proof that you documented this prior to the comparison. Just having a side by side. Flip, uh, flip of a coin you know maybe your assessor says that's enough maybe he says that it's not enough uh, maybe he says that yeah your policy says you have to look at the the uh, the unknown first uh, did you do that yep of course I did because it's in the policy so that's exactly what I did um, you know someone else yeah. may require uh, you know more a higher level of documentation to demonstrate that uh, in the end yeah I think that a um that the higher level of, of documentation uh, is going to be what gets settled on. So if you if you don't have something to to you know physically demonstrate that now, uh, start you know looking around for something to, <laughs> some way to actually do that. Um, uh, whether it be Photoshop or some other um, you know forensic specific software. Or, or even marking photographs with or, dots. Or, yes, or, or good old poking holes. <laughs> <laughs> FBI style. <laughs> um, all right. All so right. That's, that, that's a pretty big one. I mean, especially for pattern evidence. But, I mean, it's, it's interesting. They list DNA in there. So you have to select your alleles before looking at the known profile. And, and it even lists uh, dr drug chemistry that you have to select your mass spec peaks that you think are relevant prior to looking at a known, which is yeah. interesting because, of course, in drug chemistry, you it's the same peaks every time. I mean, they don't vary. They're the same. So if it's cocaine, you've got the same mass you know fragment peaks that you're looking for so it, that one's a weird that's a little weird for I, for drug chemistry because they're not changing and there isn't that variability there but okay well, I, I have heard you know just kind of around the lab that that the, the concept of marking the unknown uh, alleles in the DNA comparison 
before looking at the known standard, it seems to be catching on uh, and being more of yeah. like a thing now. Um, yeah. But I know there 10 was, years uh, ago, it was not as, as it wasn't hammered in as hard as it was to late print examiners. The, the whole concept of no, 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 you can't look at that until you, you know, clearly document uh, things in the, in the unknown. Yeah, uh, about a year ago, I think maybe, uh, a really important paper came out from John Buckleton, Bodoli, and some other big DNA people that right. guidelines for interpretation of you know DNA mixtures, and that was one of the the big things was how to select an allele to uh, for inclusion and how to uh, exclude a peak from your process, basically saying it's an artifact, etc. And it had. Very detailed guidelines for when to include or exclude a peak, which I think a lot of agencies are beginning to adopt that, especially post PCAST report. Um, all right, so uh, next section I want to touch on is uh, 510. Now, this is reporting the results. Um, so, um, this is uh, you know, overall, that the laboratory shall have a policy and procedure for the reporting of test results. Um, okay, that's easy enough. You, that's basically saying have a policy, and you know, all labs are like, all right, cool, this is the policy, we have one. But that procedure shall uh, identify what will be reported for all items received, including items not tested, items created that were or could be tested, and for all testing performed partial and complete. We'll get more to that in here in a minute, but let me punch a couple more items here. Um, uh, address how to properly qualify the significance of associations, rather, whether by a statistic or a qualitative statement. Uh, describe how to clearly communicate the reasons when the reported results indicate that no definitive conclusion can be reached. Uh, require report i.e. I. when you have an inconclusive you have inconclusive. a state why it's inconclusive yeah uh yeah uh, and require reporting of an association resulting from a database search uh, so if you do get the id from searching aphis uh, then you know making sure that that is clearly reported in there um so a couple of things i want to want to get to here first that partial and complete testing um we got another email, or you did, Glenn. You forwarded it on to me uh, recently. Um, uh, also talking about this uh, this ANAB um, uh, question and and how how we're going to you know labs are going to address reporting comparison conclusions. Um, mm -hmm. So his specific question was: Well, if you have an ID to person A, but you also have person B that you're comparing in the case. And that, whether that comparison is exclusion or inconclusive, or you didn't really even complete it because you just, you ID'd the first guy, what are you, what are you reporting? Um, his quality manager uh, is uh, basically taking the line that every exemplar and every latent um, needs a conclusion. And, um, I mean, I can, I, I can see from that, that whole perspective, I guess, or, or that I can see quality assurance managers doing that. I can um, see DNA ones doing that. Well, I mean, I can see people wanting to do that because like, okay, you know, we're, you know, saying, okay, well, that makes sense, uh, in some, in some case, uh, and, uh, in the past, what I've heard latent print people coming back to say is, well, you know, I, I may have scanned through all these cards, but, you know, I, I, I did a complete comparison or complete, um, uh, you know, I did that whole complete ACE process for this exemplar, but then I kind of stopped because I already identified somebody and I, I didn't keep looking at all the other ones to, uh, to reach a, a, a final conclusion. But, the, the standard here says um, you got to identify in this 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 uh, policy on resor res results uh, has to talk about how you report all testing performed, whether that's partial or complete. Uh, now this also starts bringing back in that um, exclusion of all others, uh, mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing, because 
if you identify somebody, do, do you have to compare it to anybody else? Does it mean that you've excluded the next guy on the list? Uh, Glenn, how, how, what's your initial take on how you're reading this? Uh, this is a great example of trying to make a square peg fit to a round hole. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think I, I really do. I think we're we're making this way too complicated. I know my preference has always been take the latent and then for the latent list the individuals whose cards you had in front of you that you were comparing against. And if you made the idea on the first card or the fifth card or the third card doesn't really matter to me just list the ones that you, that you compare it against like you said you might have skimmed through several but i think it's it's silly whether it's the first one or the fifth one because the examination really wasn't complete as you're skimming through those you're just you're looking for that first strong association and then go on to do the full comparison you're not going to go back and then do full exclusions on the remaining people i i think i do think we're making it overly complicated um, my my preference always has been just list them in a table or list them per latent. These are the, the, the names on the cards I, I had and compared against for this latent, meaning that the, the cards were in front of me and I, I flipped through them. And I don't know if it was the first one or the fifth one. doesn't really matter to me. I, I know that sounds a little bit like uh, skirting the issue, but I honestly think that we're making this more complicated than it needs to be when it comes to something like that, where... In DNA, for example, you could potentially exclude multiple people because you can also include multiple people. And that's the, right. the, the thing that should make it different. If you could actually include multiple people in your conclusions, then I think it is fair to compare everyone and list those conclusions. If you can't identify multiple people from a single latent, then it doesn't make sense to go through this process. Uh, well, okay, so playing a little devil's advocate here, if an agency has a policy on the requirements for an exclusion, mm -hmm. uh, would, wouldn't a defense uh, attorney argue that, uh, I, I, yeah, sure, you may have identified, you know, person A over there, but I want to yes. know whether you excluded my client to this latent or whether it was inconclusive, um, or is the prosecutor going to start going down that road? Again, fully not understanding that's not how this works. Um, uh, and, and Or could a quality assurance manager, looking at the exclusion policy, say, well, okay, uh, you have this exclusion policy and you identified that guy. Well, which of these other uh, people you know, would you exclude versus uh, not reach this this requirement that we have for exclusion. And what would you say to, to try to get that quality assurance manager off that line of thinking? It's a good question. I mean, that is a good question. Because if you ID'd the one guy, but the, the attorney wants you to say yes, but does that mean then you excluded my guy? Technically no, because if you didn't finish the comparison out and exclude them, uh, Oh, that is that is tricky because, I mean, honestly, the my answer would have to be I didn't exclude them. I wouldn't expect to see that much agreement if I had done the full comparison out. I don't expect to see that. And had that agreement been there, I might have been looking at your client for the ID. But uh, that, that's a good question, Eric. That's that's a nice little gray zone you've picked up on. <laughs> And and then I know that other agencies, you know, may work in a kind of back and forth way where you may start off with, you know, five suspects. You compare and you compare and you compare and you're making IDs and then you come across a latent that isn't one of those five people. So you put it into APHIS mm -hmm. and then you, you get a sixth person. Um, yep. But now that sixth person wasn't one of those cards on the table for your first. Right. 20 comparisons so should um, not be listed in there i agree so then you know do you keep track of yeah what stage of the process these new cards made it onto the table with all the latents yeah actually i, I always did i mean once okay. someone else was introduced then remaining unidentifieds were compared against that new individual or individuals so the way i've always worked it is if it gets a 
full and complete comparison, then the result gets reported. And if not, then it doesn't. So that may mean that, you know, I've got the guy's card on the table, but I, you know, I identified somebody else. So, well, I'm not going to then specify that, that in my list of things of the latents I compared to this specific person, I did, don't include that one, uh, that latent in the list that I compared to that guy. Uh, because even though I may have, you know, skimmed through things real quick, uh, I, I didn't go any further than that. But if I did a complete comparison and exclusion to that guy and excluded him, and then later did a full complete ID to somebody else, then both can get reported. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. I mean, I right. that distinction, I'm I'm with you because you're right. They're almost two separate events at that point. It's exactly. Not all, yeah, and but the only difference is I don't know that I would necessarily exclude someone. Or, you know, too quick. Like, I wouldn't, if I had three people, I wouldn't spend all my time on that first card and then exclude that person. I'd oh, skim no, through it. Go. Yeah, no, I mean, I know what you're saying. You, these are two separate events separated right, right. from each other. If all of a sudden, you know, you go through, you exclude somebody. Um, and uh, even if, you know, you're like, all right, I'm, I, even if you haven't really quite technically handed it off to the verifier yet, but, you know, you've written down exclusion because it's done. And yeah. then the next morning, the officer calls in and says, hey, we just picked up this guy last night. Uh, his prints are in the system now. Uh, we, yeah. you know, He's a new suspect. Look at him. And I'll say, oh, yep, it's him. Well, I'm still going to report the exclusion to the first guy um, because I I did finish that. Now, Yeah, I, I'm with you there. The, the weird part <laughs> comes in, you know, when now you have – so you had two people initially – and you excluded one, the other one you reported inconclusive, and then that next day they call in with the right guy and you've ID'd that guy. Well, I, I did mm-hmm. a full comparison and I reached that inconclusive decision. That was a final call that I made. Well, again, I'm going to follow through with my with my, with the with the logic I already have set up for myself. Report exclusion to the first guy, inconclusive to the second guy, ID to the third guy. <laughs> Which takes some explaining, but hey, it, it's just going in depth into the explanation as to why a you, you may reach an inconclusive result. And um, I'm not going to let my ID to somebody else bias why I reached that inconclusive the first time. Um, sure. So, okay. Next big thing. You know, this kind of replies to any, everybody, but uh, no more admin reviews. Didn't see that coming. Yeah, that that was actually one of the more surprising things. Uh, was that right? Uh, that talks about technical reviews, and that doesn't appear to have changed. It seems the same requirements for technical reviews, but uh, the administrative review is nowhere in the supplementals at all. I don't know if there's still something in the actual ISO standard. I I, I don't again have that here with me to to double check that section, but. It kind of seems like what what we're kind of looking at here that it's just gone totally now. Whether or not you know any specific lab is going to take that out, I mean, if it's still in the policy, you have to do an admin review. Then you still have to do an admin review because uh, you know this is just the minimum standard. If a lab chooses to have a policy saying you have to do this extra review as well, then. Uh, part of the assessors coming in is looking to make sure you're following everything that your policy says you're doing, uh, even if it's above and beyond what the requirements are, especially with, you know, tightening budgets. Uh, I can see some labs starting to pull back on admin reviews. I don't know that I would miss them. (laughs) As a supervisor, do you do all the admin reviews then? I do a lot of them. Yes, I do a lot. I mean, in our section, I mean, it's a few hundred. I mean, we've got 700 cases a month that, you know, we have to deal with. And so between me and one other person, you know, we're doing, you know, 300 some admin reviews a month. But let me, I mean, this is a little different because this is, you know, now outside of latent prints. Um and I, I kind of have a, a feel, at least for our lab, as to how many come back once it makes it to the admin review process. But what about in uh, in in that field? How many how many do you have to send back for changes? 
Oh, from the admin level? Yeah. Uh, one every two to 300 cases. So a okay. handful a month. And it's usually you catch something um, in the, the name of the individual, something in the paperwork. There might It's pretty minor stuff. It's rarely the quality. I might see um, a statement of uncertainty missing from the report or uh, just, you know, something – Something I know is supposed to be on the report, but it's it's never a, a major technical error. It's it's usually something that's forgotten from the report that's supposed to be there, or it's some minor misspelling of a name or something you know, something weird like that. So what's the next one that you're seeing, Glenn? Well, I'm actually I'm jumping back to your methods one a little bit. The oh, right, five right. ten one one. Uh, there are two things about that. I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting, and boy, again, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but. There really are specific that you really have to explain where the individual came from. Did they come from a, a database or not? And, and it says right here, you have to explain that this was an entry into APHIS and that the association came from a database search. And there's no, they're, they're not mincing words here. That I, I do and have reviewed agencies, unaccredited agencies, that do not state that the person was a result of a hit, uh, an APHIS hit. And I think that's important. Eric, you and yeah. I have discussed this on, ep- on other episodes, um, why that is different than looking at a suspect that's presented to you from the police, from a snitch or a DNA hit or something else. So you're getting a suspect from a different way as opposed to an APHIS search. And so the requirement is making sure that is in the report and needs to be in the report. The the other thing I thought that was interesting, and I don't see it here in this requirement, but I'm hearing people talk about this, is that they thought that the new changes required them to state the methods that they used in the report itself. I don't see that in this language. I wouldn't interpret any of these, but I know that some examiners are saying the new requirements require you in the report to state, you know, if you use superglue, that needs to be in your report. If you used amido black, that needs to be in your report. If you used ace V, that needs to be in your report. If you did blind verification, that needs to be in your report. I'm I'm personally all for those things. I think they should be in the report, but historically we don't put those things in the report. And I don't do you see anything here that requires that level of specificity of the methods that you used? No, not, I mean, not to that level. I, I mean, and I would kind of split some of that out, you know, for something like uh, blind verification or maybe even maybe even talking about uh, ACE-V. Uh, you know, I might be able to be okay with that. But the specifics of the of the processing technique, uh, that, that just seems to be like the definition of what belongs in the notes. Uh, the, the thing, one of, the only thing that really kind of, gets to that seems to be uh, address how to properly qualify the significance of associations so you know how far does properly qualifying the significance of associations like does that involve going through some of ACEV and talking about the qualitative statements that you know that that, uh, that you're making in whatever discipline you know, maybe maybe that could be kind of what they're getting at uh, but I don't see the specifics a specific statement that would be like the smoking gun of, oh no, you have to go to this level of detail. Uh, it would only be kind of, um, you know, interpreting some of these, these statements to, to, to be a, an sure. additional requirement. Well, I mean, I, 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 I do think our reports are fairly lacking in detail of, you know, of what we did. Uh, and you're right. The notes could be a good place for it when agencies take good notes. But again, looking at lots of agency reports and (laughs) private case work, sometimes I have no idea what the hell people did. Right. Yeah. Um, Some agencies are better than others. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. And and I've seen I've seen the gamut from um, whoa, that's that's a lot to. Um, where is, you know, information on what just happened here? Um, even, you know, even in this, you know, specific variations between examiners at my own agency and then going back in time and looking at old casework, that'll, that, that, that'll just open your eyes right now. If you go back and look 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, to some case file, 
try to piece back together what somebody did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good luck. Well, um, I think the last big thing, <laughs> kind of a big thing, um, is in the Asclad Lab supplemental, there was, in a, you know, after the supplemental, there was an appendix to the supplemental. Uh, and Appendix C was specifically related to, to latent prints. And yeah, basically... It's, it's called latent print examination records. And right, it's, it's exactly that. It's an appendix at the very end of the 2011 supplemental. And I, and I know you're going to describe it in a moment, but just to set the table here, this is something that ASCLAD Lab came to SWIGFAST like back in 2008 or nine, and said, we want to raise the bar and we want you, SWIGFAST, to write additional supplemental rules and requirements for the examination of latent prints, which we did. We, we did write those. But I remember certain members of SWIGFAST getting a little irritated, like, why, why do we have to raise the bar? Why are we being held to a higher standard and the other disciplines aren't having to do that? And right. we had lots of things in there about annotations and retaining records and retaining exemplars and legible reproductions of things and and all this kind of stuff that we put in there that none of the other disciplines had to do. Except for DNA, they, they do have a set of separate standards. But I, I do remember that we'll do this, but we're not happy about being singled out. And and th- we were told at the time, oh, no, no, the other disciplines, you're, <laughs> you're, um, you're leading the field. The other disciplines will have to do this too. Never happened. <laughs> it was just us. Right, right. Anyway, all right. So I didn't want to steal your thunder. No, no, but it, just setting the table. But it's um, it's gone basically. It that whole appendix is is not contained uh, anywhere in you know in its in its current form. It doesn't really show up anywhere in the new ANAB document. Now, you know, certain lines from here may still be you know enforced uh, because they oh you know technically fall under this or that, but. The, the you know kind of the singling out like you're talking about of latent prints to do these very specific things with uh with records uh it isn't going to be you know there going forward yeah I, I mean a good example would be um you know in appendix c it says that whenever you make an id whatever known exemplar you used shall be retained as part of the case record that already is part of the um, requirements because I don't remember which one it is, but there's already it says case examination records must be sufficient that another examiner yes. in lieu of the original examiner must be able to recreate the examination. So, I mean, that that would fall in there or digital copies of lips and diagrams and such, you know, should be there. Documentation, annotations, and all those, those are all now folded into examination records, and of course they must be retained. So I think I, I think you're right. I think pretty much everything in this appendix, in my view, could be interpreted under another requirement within the supplemental. Right. This this was just one of the things this did was kind of sped up that process of hammering out what certain things mean for each discipline. Uh, and mm-hmm. for latent prints, it was very clear. Okay, this is what this means uh, for specifically latent print evidence, exemplar evidence, digital images, and, and how they're all going to be retained or treated uh, in regards to the rest of the, of the document. So, you know, a lot of this has already kind of been settled for all the accredited labs. So, you know, I, I anticipate that they're just going to keep on keeping on with anything that was listed here. Uh, hey, and... hey, there, there is something pretty interesting. I'm sorry, I was just reading this sure. one. And I... I, I'd forgotten all about this because I, <laughs> I remember arguing about this. I'll just read what it says in the appendix. For those laboratories which maintain custody and control of latent print evidence, the huh. laboratory may, by policy, define latent print lips with annotations to be both evidence and examination records. For for those agencies that write things on the lips that do that documentation, I remember this was a huge argument about, well, we write, you know, the ID and the conclusions right on the lips, and we write all this on the lips because we maintain the lips. 
I don't know that you get away with that under the new uh, because evidence is evidence and examination records are not supposed to be retained in the same way as the evidence. These are kind of different things. Oh, I would be surprised if that sticks around. I I don't see how you can treat your evidence as examination records under these new requirements. But that was an exception well, in the, uh, the latent print appendix. I, I don't because I mean in even in this document, but also in the new ANAB one, they they you know define exemplar records as evidence, but also talk about them in, in kind of more of a in other ways as I, well. So yeah, I mean it doesn't mean you can't write on them. It just means that you just need to make a copy of them after you write on them, and that copy should be part of your examination oh, okay. records, not. Not I got to go back to the original PD and pull these lifts and now look at what I wrote on the lift as part of my documentation on this case. Right. Uh, um, the funny thing is, is you know, because um, we were one of the labs that you know maintain a copy of all the lifts and even other we we maintain all the lifts that other agencies send to us and we just keep them forever. The, the impression I get is that, you know, people, when they, when they kind of came up with this idea, well, it's evidence, yeah, but it's also documentation, you know, they kind of felt like, oh, yeah, we're kind of killing two birds with one stone here. And it kind of evolved over time to be kind of a pain in some ways because there's all these requirements as to not just what these things are, um, you know, documentation and um, and evidence, but rules on how you maintain and how you store and how you uh, track the custody of the, these things as well. Um, and so now it just became, okay, these things that are both documentation and evidence, well, they have to now follow, you know, double requirements for how this works. Um, so it, it, they were kind of like super evidence that had to be treated uh, extra special. Yeah, um, I mean... You know, even, even this appendix makes a distinction that if, if, like your agency, if you maintain control of them, then it's okay. If you don't maintain control and you send them back to the agency, then you have to have um, copies right. of the right. annotations and, and in your, your examination records. I'm, I, it, it is still weird, though, that they will treat evidence as examination records, even if you do maintain the evidence. That seems very strange to me. Um. I I think it is an exception, you know, an exception and not the norm. But I, I think in other disciplines that that ends up being the case, you know, that that things are both. I'm, uh, I'm trying to think of another example. <laughs> well, you know, I know in in firearms, they, you know, they keep all these uh, all these test fires, uh, and they have to treat them like evidence, even though they created them in the lab. And you know, maybe this is part of their discipline having to change now, but I also know a lot of, of firearm uh, units don't have a like a documented side by side like we would for hmm. uh, for a comparison. They just are able to go back to this evidence and and look hmm. at it again. Um, and they talk about point. you know not being able to capture it, and it, it's not the same. And you know when you put it in the computer and you got to be able to look under the the comparative magnifier and and see all the three-dimensional bumps and stuff but i i don't know um i know that there's yeah. also technology that's, that's going to be able to start capturing that too yeah well interesting point so so um yeah in the end um let us know what the questions you're coming up with I, I'm really curious, you know, some of the things, uh, some of the emails we might get um, of changes that are already starting to happen. And, you know, comparing stories from different labs. Uh, we're having to do this now. And our quality assurance manager is saying, because ANAB. And I don't really understand it, but they, you know, they're very insistent that it's this document that's making us do this new thing. And I'm curious of kind of how consistent changes are occurring um, through labs that are going from this switch from AsCloud Lab to ADAP. Yeah, for sure. I, I really would like to hear from people, and uh, you're exactly right. I just uh, there, this this discussion has to be going on out there because in the next 
year or two agencies will be switching over to this uh, as the standard that they'll be assessed on at their next accreditation cycle. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I bet there will be certain quality managers who will knee jerk a little bit and <laughs> in, interpret something and uh, say you need to do it this way for various reasons. And we'd like to hear about some of those stories. And if you have questions, we can give you our thoughts or, and pull the listeners and see what other agencies are doing, too. Um, so we'd like to keep this topic going uh, maybe over a couple of episodes here and there in the next six months or so. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're kind of long, so let's uh, head out here quick. Um, you can email us, glenn at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. Uh, we've probably got some upcoming classes if you're listening you know, right away or if you're listening to this in the far distant future. Uh, so check us out. Uh, for any upcoming classes that we may have. Uh, rate us, please. Go on to the iTunes or the Stitcher or the whatever app that you're listening to this podcast on and give us the highest rating you can. Without without compromising your own va- value system. Oh, no, no. Totally compromise. You know, we we, oh, we yeah, definitely right, deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can also look us up on uh, patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, if you want to donate to the Double Loop Podcast Fund to help keep things going with the servers and the, the hosting and all that uh, electronic jazz. Yeah, uh, and we, we used that just recently. We paid some bills. Yeah. That was kind of yeah. nice. Thanks, it was, guys. It was. Yeah. Thank you very much for helping pay those bills. We really do appreciate it. Glenn, when we started this out, Glenn just you know just kind of shelled out the money for the hosting, and we kind of went on our way. But now, um, you know, our listeners are starting to take care of us, so uh, we're very appreciative of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really nice. So, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes—those are the main ones you can listen to us on. Uh, and uh, the opinions that we express, especially on this subject, are ours alone and not those of any agency. Uh, so, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.